Sans Pants Radio, Australia's least coherent podcast network. Total Reboot, the only podcast on the freaking internet about movies, cinema, and the big F word, film. <laughs> we are kicking off a brand new mini-series on Total Reboot. We are talking about Australian Psycho. Mm. I'm Alexis Toliopoulos, and I'm always joined by Cameron James. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad we're starting this new Miniseries, because, mm-hmm. I mean, this is a type of cinema that I think is very important to Australia, mm-hmm. and it's a big part of our film history. In fact, for a big chunk of time there, when we were like teenagers and stuff, the only films getting made were about Australian psychopaths. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because uh, to me, this is something that you and I have been talking about for a long time, mm-hmm. at least the last three or four years. Uh, just as something that we found fascinating is that Australia's film history and Australia's cultural history, there is this artistic idea of needing to interrogate the Australian psyche. Yeah. And part of that psyche is this dark underbelly mm-hmm. that they explore through film and through art, through books, through freaking like actual paintings and yeah. stuff, everything. Through TV, it's through music. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if you really want to trace it back, the fact that this is a nation built on blood is probably a big part of it. Absolutely. Um, Built on convict and genocide Mm -hmm. sort of stock. So that's built into our DNA is that we want to explore darkness and crime. Um, But it feels like it never goes away. And I never quite know Mm. if we love it or hate it. It's that idea of like sometimes it feels celebratory, mm. like a series that will definitely come up a lot in our discussions when we're talking about the crime aspects of these movies would be this Underbelly TV series, mm-hmm. which is kind of an Australian TV show that was in the wake of The Sopranos. But in Australia, it's gangster series that are like anthologies that are about a different crime incident or crime family in Australia per season. And that like blew up big. And I feel like that was something that I'm like, I can definitely point to it and go, that is celebrating crime in this country. Oh, yeah. It makes it look cool. It makes it look cool. (laughs) They're trying to make it very sexy. Mm -hmm. And I think they failed to do so. Definitely. But then there's like other examples of things that feel like a condemnation of them. Mm. Where, you know, we it's almost a condemnation of like the great Aussie bloke, the larrikin. Mm -hmm. And using that and twisting it to become like the psycho. The Mm -hmm. Australian psycho. The colonial psycho. Mm -hmm. And exploring that persona as a condemnation of like Australian suburbia like what lurks in suburbia it's not just the castle which is a beloved Australian comedy Mm. that is all about like the blue collar identity of Australia that we love to celebrate but then looking deeper and then going like well also Australian suburbia and or the bush or the rural parts of Australia the city parts of Australia also hides this or barely hides it, these ideas of bigotry Mm -hmm. and like malicious nature. Mm. And violence. Violence, domestic violence, violence on everybody. And like that is something that really is part of like this Australian identity as explored through art. And our folk heroes in Australia 
are people like Ned Kelly who are like bush rangers. Yeah. Like not, they're not a cowboy. It's like our equivalent of a cowboy is someone that literally holds people up yeah. in the bush, <laughs> robbing like people, killing people. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, the most famous artworks in Australia are like those Ned Kelly, Ned Kelly paintings. paintings. Yeah. I actually have a brief story about that um, that I think sums up the way Australians feel about mm. the idea of Ned Kelly and the idea of like the fact that we love uh, criminal, like mm. we love criminals who are charismatic in this country. We so do I, I got an Uber a couple of years ago and the lady who was driving my Uber was in a really bad mood and she was upset about something. I could tell she was angry or upset. So I asked her what was up and she told me that she had just done an ancestry DNA test and she found out that her family were related to the man that convicted Ned Kelly and sent oh. him to the stocks and she was like, can you believe that? That's the most un-Australian thing ever. We're related to this man who sent Ned Kelly to the stocks. And I was just like, so you're, <laughs> you're upset that you're related to the man who caught a criminal and yeah. a murderer? Oh, but he's the hero of all heroes. <laughs> he's our Robin Hood. I mean, I don't even know if he did good things. <laughs> I don't think he did. <laughs> I know that he's a killer. No, he just took money from people. And he wore the coolest armor. It was a bucket on his head. <laughs> like, I think that's a big thing that I want to get across to our mm. international listeners, which is that our country has this incredible love-hate relationship with charismatic criminals. Mm. It's very apparent in our films. Mm -hmm. And I think I want to use this series as an entry point into Australian cinema for them because a lot of these films are fantastic mm. and they're a great way into Australian cinema. I would agree. And, you know, that's something that we have not been able to do so much in the last few years on our podcasts is like celebrate Australian cinema. We do it at home. We do it in our private life. We celebrate Australian cinema in our own private ways. But now it's time to like really celebrate Australian cinema in a bigger, accessible way to get people excited about it. Mm. Uh, because, you know, I, I, there's nothing I connect to more than Australian art. Uh, because, you know, it's part of my identity. It's mm -hmm. part of the things that I analyze about myself. It's part of like the, the broader cultural and national identity that I, you know, am part of sure. and hopefully do speak to and hopefully do dissect and deconstruct and, you know, uphold in the ways that I want to, in the ways I see fit. So I think that this miniseries will be really kind of like analyzing those things. So hopefully we do get to go deep with finding out why we are drawn to these things or why we are repelled by them. We've got a lot of great films that we're going to cover over the next little while, but we decided to start with this particular film mm -hmm. uh, for a number of reasons. For, on a more cynical level, it is very easily accessible, so mm -hmm. you can all watch it quite simply right now. Absolutely. On another level, it is a film in the recent history of Australian cinema that really broke bad on an international oh, yeah. level. It was a it was a boom and it kicked off a whole new interest in Australian filmmakers and Australian actors. Mm -hmm. Some that are in this film that have gone on to become um, like Academy Award nominees, mm -hmm. global superstars, um, playing villains in the MCU or heroes in the MCU. And villains in Star Wars. <laughs> yep, yep. So <laughs> this movie, it's from 2010. It's called Animal Kingdom. It's directed by David Michaud and it was a groundbreaking film for the time and a very important one for me. 
very important one for me too. Yeah. I think that it is right in that little boom that Australian cinema had in that late 2000s, early 2010s, that for me as a young person reinvigorated my interest in Australian stories Mm -hmm. and Australian filmmakers. Uh, It came like one year after Samson Delilah, Mm -hmm. which is a movie just I absolutely adore, Warwick Thornton film, Mm -hmm. that... I remember I told you this a couple of weeks ago again that when I saw that film, I wanted to become an Australian filmmaker. Yeah. In bold and italics, that word, Australian. What about Underline? Uh, Not yet. That would happen one year later when a little movie by a filmmaker called David Michaud came out. I've heard of him. In fact, I just said his name. Yes. He is a director and also writer of a movie called Animal Kingdom. That's right. Um, so, guys, I'm sure most of you who are listening have already seen the film or you've just rewatched it. Mm-hmm. But uh, for those of you who have not, I know some of you guys like to do that, listen but don't watch, which is a weird kind of like perverted way to engage with this art form but it I, sickens it me it makes me want to fucking vomit i hurl in my mouth just a little bit <laughs> when i think about <laughs> you being spoiled from this australian art oh i'm just gonna listen to these two guys talk about a movie i don't want to watch it and you know what F you, but also thank you for mm-hmm. engaging with our product. Thank you so much, guys. We appreciate every listen, even if it does sicken me to death. So if you haven't seen it, this is a crime film. It's a, it's about the decline of armed robbery, mm. but it's also about a once prosperous criminal dynasty that are like on the edge of decay. And this film captures them in what is essentially their final moments of relevance mm. in uh, the Australian crime, you know, universe. It's based, well, not based, it's inspired mm. by true stories from the 80s. Do you know much about how this movie got made? Um, I know a little bit, but probably more on the practical side of, mm. I know David Michaud was kind of hanging around for a while. Yeah. He was working at Empire Magazine for a bit. He was working at Inside Film Magazine. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. He was the uh, managing editor mm-hmm. of Inside Film Magazine. Uh, so it's like a Truffaut type guy. Like he's yeah. critiquing films Love and it. writing about films. A all Truffaut, the while. hopefully a James and Toliopoulos type guy as well. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Try all the while he's you know desperately wanting to make his own features. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's makes he makes a few shorts. Yes, he crews on films. He works on documentaries. Mm-hmm. He acts a little bit. Yes, he pops up in a few movies here and there. Pops up in this movie. Mm-hmm. He also pops up in uh, Mister In Between. Yeah. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah. He's in, he's actually, it was one of those moments where I saw him pop up in Mr. In Between where I was like, who's this handsome actor? Mm. I feel like I know him from something, but he's really good looking. He must be a star or something. Mm. Or maybe he's in ads. Yeah. And then I went, oh, it's the filmmaker David Michaud. <laughs> he's too good looking to be behind the camera. Yeah. Get that guy out in front of Put it. Put him in the front. He's very handsome. This guy's a hunk. So he writes uh, this film in the year 2000. Takes mm. him 10 years to get it made. I believe it was called Jay. It was called Jay mm. when it first popped up. I've seen that title page. Have you? Yeah. Apparently not a single word from Jay makes it into Animal Kingdom. Really? This is one of those things where... Surely someone says hello in both. Uh, maybe the word the. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> someone says, you know, the aquarium shop, maybe, <laughs> in both versions. So this is kind of an interesting story because um, a lot of people in the in like the mythologizing of feature films or debut films... Mm. 
like to talk about genius and how this film just poured out of me like it came out fully formed it was an idea that i've been sitting on but as soon as i started typing genius poured out of my fingers and by first draft it was perfect mm. david michaud goes on record by saying this took me 10 years to write and i needed it yeah like it went through multiple rewrites it kept getting countless notes back i kept addressing them i was going crazy i kept abandoning the project coming back to it because mm. i always knew there was something there so for better or worse i think this film is a testament to rewriting if you're a creative person out there listening yes this is a good bit of advice for you and i would also say for australian listeners that want to a young people or that want to be in film mm -hmm. this is a good example as well because i know that it also went through like those workshop initiatives through yeah. like your screen australia or screen mm -hmm. victoria and there was, I know there was one that it went through that like Lynn Ramsey, the great director of like Rat Catcher, and you were never really here. She was like part of like the mentorship on that wow. project at, that, at one point. But this is still like maybe half a decade before this movie exists in any kind of form. I think he took versions of it through a lot of those workshops mm. and got countless notes again and again. And then it finally becomes what we see on the screen, which is this kind of lean, um, poetic retelling of several Australian crime stories. Mm. And I think like for better or worse, this film is a testament to how difficult the development process is to Absolutely. make a film. I think you and I have both been in development for projects before and we get frustrated by it and we come away from it saying like, God, development is such a pain mm. in the ass. I hate hearing people's opinions about mm. my stuff. This movie's proof that maybe you should listen a lot of the time because yeah. some of these development execs know... They just know the art. They know what people want to see and they mm. know that there's a way you can communicate your idea through, I don't know, a more like a more malleable lens that isn't mm. just your psycho brain sitting yeah. at home writing a fucking story. Exactly. How to connect with <laughs> How people. to connect to the audience that are actually going to the cinema. And I think another interesting thing about this film that I'd never thought of until today when I watched this movie like twice this week mm. uh i'd never looked it up i'd never thought of it was a lot of the times debut i've got this idea in my head i think it might even be a tarantinoism or something mm. uh, or like an idea passed on from like filmmaker to filmmaker is that people make their first movie when they're 30 sure people make their first movie around then and I, that's something that's always been in my head and then seeing this film and just falling in love with it once again and then finding out David Michaud was like 38 years old when this film finally mm. comes out. I'm like, that's so reassuring that you don't just have to like get out there. You have to make it. Like he mm. was making great short films that whole decade leading up to this film. Yeah, his shorts are fantastic. Oh, I love them. Crossbow is yeah. such like a almost like a proof of concept for this film where yeah. it's like about uh, almost a quiet observer watching this kind of like skeezy Darrow that's something that probably come up a lot in this podcast mini series. We're probably using a lot more Australian <laughs> slang than we normally use. So Darrow is a slang for derelict, yeah. which more der is it derelict? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, think so. I was going to say derelict. <laughs> that's Zoolander's. Yeah. Uh, it's Mugatu's yeah. news <laughs> look in Zoolander. But Darrow is it's slang for that, but it mainly just means like shady person. I would say, you know, the American equivalent is white trash. Mm. 
Um, which is a slur. Thank you very it much. It is a slur. Crackers we... like me, we don't like hearing that sort of stuff. And a honky like me just gets by hearing it, okay? <laughs> I know it's not directly written to me. It's definitely not about you. You're wearing a Adidas Velour rugby mm-hmm. shirt right now. True. So maybe I'm more Darrow. I'm wearing a Newcastle Knights yes, jumper. Yes, you're Darrow. So I'm more Darrow. You're Darrow. You. I'm more kind of leery is what they would say. Yeah, or a Westie. Or... Mm. No, not Westie. I don't know what you are. Yeah, I but neither I do I. I love it. Hopefully I find out along the Whatever way. Whatever it is, you're fantastic. <laughs> but um, that's like a, a, a very much like a proof of concept for this film where it's an outsider narrator viewing from the outside uh, like his Darrow neighbours mm. and then their conflict with the police that it builds up to. It's a fascinating short film. You can watch it on the Blue Tongue YouTube page in beautiful 240p. <laughs> so watch it on the smallest screen you can possibly watch it Get on. Get a real look at all those pixels. That's mm. exciting for you guys. Yeah, I couldn't tell one actor <laughs> in the whole thing. I had to look up to find out that Joel Edgerton's in it <laughs> later on. Yeah. Oh, so that I mean, his this film is based around a, a similar type mm. of world, I guess, which is that Melbourne. It doesn't say when it's set. The crimes that it's based on are from the eighties. Yeah. But I would assume this film is maybe contemporary. Or I would say like right up to contemporary. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty close. But this type of character, this like suburban criminal, mm. it's a very Australian look. It's like football shorts, thongs, mm. long ratty hair, singlets, jeans, jeans chains, yeah. like smoking cheap cigarettes, drinking long necks of beer. Mm. It's a very... It's a very uniquely Australian look. The closest thing that I've already said is like the white trash look in mm. America. But these guys are fucking scary. So I'll tell you a little bit about the backstory of um, the the true crimes yeah. that these films this film is based on. This film is inspired by a crime family from Melbourne in the seventies and eighties called the Petting the Pettingill Crime Family. I didn't know much about them mm. at the time. Do you know much about them? Um, I've only read a little bit back when this film was coming out. Right. And then since then, never again. I didn't know anything about them when I saw this film. I just kind of assumed that it was, you know, kind of inspired by multiple different mm. crime families or whatever. But the more you read about the Petting Hills, you're like, this is about them. Yeah. Um, they were a family of criminals that mainly dealt in drug trafficking and armed robbery. Uh, they were involved, allegedly... In the 1988 shootings of two police officers called the Walsh Street Police Shootings. Mm -hmm. And it's a family of brothers, many of whom had been in and out of jail for most of their lives, all overseen by a matriarch and former madam called Kath Pettingill. Wow. Who is a very scary individual with a glass eye Mm. and a sharp tongue. Very clearly the inspiration for Smurf in this film. They also uh, have a nephew called Jason, or Jay. Wow, okay. Who turned on them during the trial wow. of the Wall Street shooting. So I've heard David Michaud say, no, 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 this is not based on the Petting Hills. It's mm. just inspired by multiple different stories in the rich tapestry of Australian crime. But if you heard everything I just said then, you'd be like, okay, it's just about them. Mm, that's the, that's <laughs> this movie. It's just what this movie is. I think I always assumed it was more about like the Williams family. So like did I. Carl Williams, who was like a big uh, like underworld 
icon in Australia at this mm. time. He was like a hit man mm-hmm. um, who did give a shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought so too. And I kind of thought, you know, like it's taking urban legends mm. from crime in the way that Chopper did. But no, it's kind of largely based on this one family who kind of had a stranglehold on drugs and armed robbery mm. in the 80s and 90s. And many of them are still around today. Yeah. Just living their lives being old fucked pieces of shit in Melbourne. Yeah. Sorry, bleep that out. Sorry, I Melbourne. I don't want to get fucking bashed by any crime families next yes. time I go down to Melbourne. All our crime is located on the Golden Mile. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very exciting. Anyways, watching it with that lens this time around, mm. I was even more excited by the way that it kind of took from the pages of real life and then added poetry and art to them mm. and kind of tying these events together in a way that felt, I mean, we're going to get into it, but it, it really does feel like you're watching an epic. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, I think it's, anyway, we're going to dive into it. I don't yeah. want to give away my feelings too much. I would say before we dive into it, that epic crime story nature of this film mm. was what I first connected with when I first saw it because you know I've talked about it a lot I love gangster movies and I think seeing this one at that time this really did feel the closest to that family saga that the Godfather captures so well mm. in that kind of crime narrative that I think I'd ever seen come from maybe anywhere else and I felt genuinely patriotic and like Australia, you freaking did it, brother. <laughs> you did it, Aussie. <laughs> well, let's get patriotic. Everything sits in the order somewhere. Everything reaches an understanding. Things survive because they're strong. You may think that you're one of the strong creatures. But you're not. You're one of the weak ones. You've survived because you've been protected by the strong. But they're not strong anymore. Hope you find the killers. Where's Joey? I'll protect your senior sergeant Leggy. Animal Kingdom 2010, directed by David Michaud. Mm. I am going to read you the logline for this movie in a little segment that we like to call... I love that logline. Go for it. Where would you get this logline from? This comes from Letterboxd. Wonderful, wonderful website. Usually pretty accurate, I would say, as well. Mm. So I want you to tell me how you feel for this being like an official kind of logline out there for this film. Let's do it. Following the death of his mother, Jay finds himself living with his estranged family under the watchful eye of his doting grandmother, Smurf, mother to the Cody boys. Jay quickly comes to believe that he is a player in this world, but as he soon discovers this world is far larger and more menacing than he could ever imagine, Jay finds himself at the centre of a cold-blooded revenge plot that turns the family upside down. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. It's pretty accurate, but I think what it loses is what I love so much about this movie is that I think like the central thesis of this film is ingrained in that idea of Australian psychos. Mm-hmm. This is a film that is so richly about power 
mm-hmm. so richly about control. Mm-hmm. And I think that this logline almost gets to that, but it's so just about the plot. Because I feel like this movie, while it is very tight, sure. it's under two hours long, and it, every part of this is in aid of building up this perspective of the character Jay and the world around him and him navigating through it in a very direct plot-like way. But I feel like this movie is so richly thematic and that is like the main crux of the movie. I want to add another word to to what you just said. So you said uh, power and control kind of at the heart of these Australian psycho stories. I'd like to add survival mm. to it in a very Darwinian sense. Yes. Like this is about a world that is a fucking jungle mm-hmm. and you have to be mean and lean in order to survive in it. All of these movies are kind of about that. Sort of like a, you know, a fish out of water mm. type or a young pup who has to learn mm. how to bear its teeth. This movie very directly about it. I mean, the title is Animal Kingdom mm. and Guy Pearce gets that big monologue literally about the jungle and yeah. how there's weak and strong people. So it's kind of right there for you. And I think what's interesting about this movie is so often you would see something where, you know, uh, a movie like this, which I feel is very predatory. Mm-hmm. Many of these characters in the movie are like innately predatorial and you see them, they almost feel like these like languid lions. And there's one lioness that rules them all. And that's like in in the freaking opening titles of this movie, there's like a brass copper mm. art piece that just shows like this pride of lions. And it's very obviously a metaphor, but we love those obvious metaphors on this podcast. We love that shit. We love them. We love thematic symbolism, okay? Because it's cool. We love overt storytelling. Let's talk a little bit about the Australian psychos themselves. So we're going to be covering a lot over the course of this series. Mm-hmm. Who are the psychos in this film that we're going to be focusing on? I think that there's many, and they take many different shapes and forms of the Australian psychopathy, Mm -hmm. but there are all different levels. And I think what's interesting about this movie is there are two at the center of it Mm -hmm. that are very different to each other and both kind of emblematic of different types of what we both revere, celebrate and condemn in like Australian, Mm. the Australian psyche that is this underbelly of crime and dangerous, like dangerous world. Mm. And one of them is a Jackie Weaver character who Mm -hmm. plays Smurf, who I think is more overtly sociopathic in that they are Mm -hmm. manipulative. Is Mm -hmm. like their main mode of transgression in this film is like how deeply manipulative they are in every sense, in how they control the boys around them, the men around them, Mm -hmm. in a very overtly sexual way Mm -hmm. or bodily way, Mm -hmm. controlling way where she controls her sons and her and her her grandson and the police around them as well. And then on the other side of that coin, you've got Ben Mendelsohn playing Pope, Mm -hmm. who is, I would say, overtly scary, dangerous, unpredictable, survivalist psychopath. It's funny. um, I, I heard Jackie Weaver describe her character as a sociopath, who raised psychopath sons. And that's kind of what you just said. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty spot on. Yeah, it's pretty spot on. Uh, both amazing performances, both incredibly celebrated performances. Mm-hmm. Jackie Weaver was nominated for an Oscar. And they both won the AFI Award for Best AFI Actor and Actress. Award. And on uh, the year it came out, 
I was at the Inside Film Awards. Wow. David Michaud's former stomping ground. Mm-hmm. Ben Mendelsohn was nominated for Best Actor. Yep. He lost. He stood up and he walked out of there. <laughs> <laughs> when they announced whoever the fuck wanted. I oh think it was like God. Xavier Samuel or someone. And he just stood up and left. I'm looking at the AFI Awards. The other nominees for Best Actor were James Freshville for this movie. Mm-hmm. Playing uh, yeah. Joshua J. Cody. Clive Owen for The Boys Are Back. I remember that movie, but I can't <laughs> believe he was nominated for it. They always there's a thing in Australian films yeah. where they can get one foreign international yeah. actor, yeah. and it will help with funding. Mm-hmm. But they're usually only allowed one, yep. and that is a clear example of like yep. they got a guy. Hey, we got a guy, guys. Hey, we got a guy. We got a guy. Slightly he, past his prime. He could have been freaking Bond. Could have been James Bond. Okay. Okay. About a decade ago, the guy could have been freaking Bond. Okay. <laughs> and now he's playing some sad dad. <laughs> yeah. The yep. other one. Maybe this could be a, been the winner. Beneath Hill 60, Brendan Cow. Oh, yeah. might have been Brendan Cow, mm. to be fair. Probably played a few psychopaths himself. Uh, yeah, on and off screen. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, yeah. Okay. We'll mainly focus on Mendo and mm-hmm. Weaver, two Australian legends who have since become international critically acclaimed mm-hmm. and in-demand actors. Yeah. And we've seen them in... Everything over the last decade or so, like yes. fucking comedies, fucking Batman movies. It was so cool seeing Jackie Weaver have like this big moment, like yeah. internationally. Because I've in Australia, we love Jackie Weaver. She's yeah. great actress. Picking a hanging rock is like a breakout for her. Uh, Jackie Weaver did have a moment. I mm. remember seeing her in the seeing her in the Disaster Artist. Yes, was a moment where I was kind of like. Fuck, she's in the comedy world now. And she's playing like the uh, the cancer-stricken mother yeah. of Lisa in she the disaster. That artist. iconic dialogue. Um, but that was a cool moment being like, fuck, she's in the Seth mm. Rogen universe. Yeah, she this was, is like this she's transcended into that now. That's crazy. I remember as well, she was in David O. Russell movies. Oh yeah. She Silver is, Linings Playbook. Yeah, Bradley Cooper's mom in Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah. She might have even been Oscar nominated for that too, alongside De Niro. Yeah, I think she was. And she's so good in that, by the way. She's fantastic in that movie. And it's interesting because it's a matriarchal character as well. Uh-huh. Completely different. So different. Completely different. So different. And also, remember, five-year engagement. I think she plays Emily Blunt's mom <laughs> in the five-year engagement. <laughs> I remember being so excited for that movie. Go like, oh, Weaver's in it. Jackie Weaver's in yeah, it. Yeah, I always get pumped when she's in something. Mm. I, I, everyone who listens to this knows that I've just watched Mystery Road and mm. Goldstone to Ivan Sen crime yes. films. She's in Goldstone as... You know, I don't want to spoil it, but she's in it and mm. she plays an important part in it. So yes. watch her if you haven't seen that. Ben Mendelsohn is, let me tell you something. Australia loves, in fact, the world loves a redemption story. Mm-hmm. Mendelsohn's one is one of those because he was like a beloved like film actor, mm-hmm. a television actor in a lot of things too. He kind of fell off. He was a bit of a bad boy. He had a bit of a bad rep. And then this movie kind of like brought him, I I would say, icon status. Yes. In Australia, I would say that Redemption Arc took him mm. from like beloved, kind of like young actor mm-hmm. who often played in those shady roles or people that were like on the fringes of society. Maybe mm. they lived in the bush, like in The Year My Voice Broke. He plays yep. like a kind of like a bush vandal. Mm. And then in the 90s, he does these movies with David Caesar, Idiot Box and Mullets, mm-hmm. which are 
kind of beloved larrikin movies. I would say he kind of embodied the larrikin, hmm. which is... How would you describe a larrikin? Because it's a very Australian Such word. Such a funny thing. Someone, a friend of mine from the UK was asking me what a larrikin was the other mm. day. And the only thing I could think of was like, just sort of like <laughs> annoying <laughs> jester. It's kind of like beloved dumbass. It's like yeah, like local idiot, yeah. I guess. Like, <laughs> for some reason, Australians either love like a charismatic criminal mm. or just the local dumbass. Australia <laughs> loves their losers. Australia yeah. really loves their losers. Yeah, but larrikins are kind of like, they're funny, I guess, is what, mm. you know, there's every few years there's a big talk in the Australian media like, is the Aussie larrikin still alive and well? Mm, yeah. And then someone will come along and it'll be like, Chris Hemsworth is the living embodiment of the Aussie larrikin. He's still like, with no, us. No, he's not dead. <laughs> the guy's like six foot 15 <laughs> and weighs 400 kilograms of pure steel. Yeah. He's not a larrikin. But it'll all be like, there's always analysis of who's a larrikin and what does a larrikin mean. And I think and at the end they of the throw day, the word larrikinism around a yeah, lot. Oh, that's, how, that's how tied it is to like the national identity is that there's an ism around Aussies the Aussies will get this. I'd say the living embodiment of the larrikin right now is Matty Johns, the footballer <laughs> who used to play in the Newcastle Knights and now has a show. And yeah. he, he's the, cu- the closest thing we have to a living larrikin. And yeah. the guy is kind of a bad guy. Yeah, he's not good. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps he's done some bad things. But also he plays funny characters with moustaches demanding to bring back the biff into football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Er- Eric uh, Banner would have been called a larrikin. Yes, he would have been a genuine larrikin. <laughs> he would be the genuine I larrikin. I hate the word larrikin. I hate that we've said it so much, and I hate that our international listeners are now Googling larrikin. Yeah, we got to look up larrikin now. Okay, larrikin. First word, Australian noun. <laughs> it means dipshit. <laughs> <laughs> but I think he transforms from larrikin to sinister yeah. so well. Yeah. Like, this is a redefining performance. Legend that- status in Australia. Absolutely. Based on this. And from here is in, it doesn't really drop the ball mm. and maybe still hasn't. Yeah. Don't you know, worry. like he's, he gets to be in the fucking Dark Knight Rises. Yes. He's in Killing Them Softly. He's in Killing Them Softly. He's in The Place Beyond the Pines. Yeah. He's in Girls. Oh yeah. He plays Jess's dad, yeah, right? Yeah. He's, and just in a lot of cool shit. And then most recently he's in the fucking Marvel Universe playing... Mm-hmm. The funny guy in the new, like, iteration of the Marvel movie. The guy plays a freaking Krell in the <laughs> Marvel universe, Krell, okay? Dude. A shape-shifting Krell, yes. okay? And he plays Krennic in the Star Wars universe. We Crazy. love Mendo. Yeah, we love Mendo. And I think that this is such a worthy performance of capturing that icon status. Mm. That first moment you see him in this film, after hearing about Pope for some time, it builds just that right level of mystique where you're like ambiguous as to what he is. Mm. And then when you see him and he sneaks in through the back of the house, yep. wearing like fucking baggy jeans yep. and a shitty Lowe's like Hawaiian <laughs> shirt. And he shocks Jay, played by James Freshville, who drops like his freaking twoies as he's about to bring it in. And he's, and then he's like, oh shit. Hey, 
guess who am I? That first line of him going, guess who am I? Is so good. Because it says so much about this character. He knows that there's a mystique about him. Yeah. He knows that people talk about him. He knows that people think about him in yeah. a dangerous way. And then he comes in and he brings that reality to it because he is quite an imposing figure. Mm. He is a lurker. He feel, His eyes are so big. Those Mendo eyes. And he feels like such a lurker. But then absolute Darrow Gronk shit as it's well. It's real interesting because um, you'd think, you know, they've, the way they've set him up, you'd think mm. when you meet this guy finally and he's like the scary big brother of the mm. Cody's and he's this dangerous armed robber who's been in and out of jail. You'd think that... Like the vision you have in your head is of like a cool, slick, mm. fucking tattooed, tattooed bikey or something, sexy dude like Callan Mulvey or some yeah. shit. But damn, you get, dude. which would be cool. Yeah, damn. But you get Mendo, and uh, and I mean, I love everything you just said about him. Like the way that he looks shitty and mm. gross and stuff is what I love about him. And I actually read this cool thing that the uh, costume designer on this film, Cappy Island, made a choice to do the opposite of what you would expect to see from a mm. crime family in this type of film. So, for example, like Craig, the Sullivan Stapleton character, yep. he's set up as the one with money. Like, mm. they constantly talk about him. Craig's got so much money now. He's a drug dealer. Mm. He's rich. He owns this mansion. Yet, he you never see him, like, with jewellery. He's no. always He's just got one silver chain, one ring, and he's wearing tracksuit pants and he's shirtless most of the time. Yeah, he's never wearing a shirt, let Never alone. wearing a shirt. They decided that for Smurf, they wouldn't go big ostentatious mob mm. wife look. They'd just make her look like she dresses it like the nice part of She goes to Target Suzanne. Or Suzanne or something. <laughs> and uh, for Pope, they decided to make him look like he's been dressed by his mum and had his hair yeah. cut by his mum for his whole life. Really does. They went dag. Yeah. Dag is another Australian word. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> okay, dag's an Aussie word. Literally what dag means, if you look it up in a dictionary, it means the freaking shit that hangs on a sheep's tail. Yeah. Because a sheep is a woolly animal. If it shits, the shit will stand on the asshole. Yeah. It doesn't squirt out. It stays there, uh, but it's used colloquially in Australia to mean someone who is fashion illiterate. Yes, thank you. That's very well put. They decided to make him look like the bit of shit that sticks to a sheep's <laughs> asshole. Just dorky, daggy, yeah. uncool. And I think it's it makes it fucking better mm, to me because absolutely. He, you don't know who the fuck this guy is. Mm. He looks like shit. His hair <laughs> looks like shit, but... And he's skinny mm -hmm. and kind of reedy and stuff, but the fucking darkness in Ben Mendelsohn's eyes, mm. it makes you, it puts you immediately on edge where you're kind of like, I don't know who the fuck this guy is. Yeah. I don't know where I stand with him, but all I know is that there's something incredibly unpredictable about him and that's terrifying. And there's the dangerousness about him that I think plays so well to like the persona that is Ben Mendelsohn mm. to kind of flip that from the larrikin to this psycho mm. is part of it is like Ben Mendelssohn has that very prominent lisp mm -hmm. uh, where he like kind of has like, he uses like he, his words kind of end in like double use almost where he's like, yeah, guess who am I? And stuff like that. <laughs> and then I think hearing that lisp in this character, mm -hmm. I think he's utilized it so well further on yeah. is that, uh, that danger about going like, 
oh, that's kind of like softens him a little bit, mm. but not really because I can never acknowledge if that. I said, <laughs> if I made fun of him for having that mm. speech impediment, he would stab me. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's like, you're like, oh, it just works so well. Yeah, I totally. think one of the most exciting things about watching this performance again is really that predatory nature of this character. Mm. It's that element of survival, that Darwinian survival that you're talking about, Cam, in that he always has to be the most powerful person in that room except for smurf smurf is the only person that he bows down to the only person that he i mean literally because she's smaller than him Mm. and he bows down to fucking kiss her on the lips Mm. like all her little boys do Mm -hmm. but um the only person that he that he allows to control him and to boss him around is his mum. Even the Joel Edgerton character, they're kind of like, even though he's like kind of the brains. They're equals they're in equals. a way. But he yeah. doesn't really follow him around as like a little puppy or anything. No. He still really is like this predatory lion. Like there's that scene with uh, Luke Ford, who's a brilliant actor. Mm. He'd done the Black Balloon before this, yep. which is a magnificent performance that you would not be able to do today. No, not at all. He was also in uh, The Mummy 3, The mm. Emperor's Tomb or whatever the fuck. He plays, he plays Brendan Fraser's son in yeah. that. Um, great actor. Fantastic he was actually actor. he was my friend's acting teacher for a long time. He is fantastic, mm. and I think that he is a bit of a secret MVP in this movie. Oh, totally. Because he yeah. plays like the youngest of the three brothers, yeah. and he is absolutely dominated by Mendelssohn. Mm-hmm. And there's that great scene where he's just going like, "Oh, you got a great gay shirt Let's on. Talk You're about a that pink scene. shirt." That scene says a lot. That's mm. um, a great example of how Pope uses dominance in this mm. in the jungle and in the real world if he can't physically dominate someone and he can't intellectually dominate someone he definitely can't intellectually dominate people because he's fucking dumb but he can wheedle into their insecurities so quickly and yeah it starts by him just saying to his younger brother i think your shirt looks gay and then that becomes a three-minute scene which is almost a monologue of just pope I think it's a great manipulative angle like that Dave Michaud's written here. He's not just saying, he's not being aggressive and saying, you're gay, I think, fuck you, I hate gay people or whatever. He's saying, I, I, you're gay and I want you to admit that you are and I'm going to accept it yeah. because I love you and I'm here to accept you. So just tell me that you're gay and I won't, I won't make fun of you. I just want to love you. I love you. You're gay. I love you. <laughs> It's a bourbon and coke. Bourbon and coke's not a very gay drink, mate. I I think, look, if you're a gay man, if you are, and you want to make yourself a gay drink, just go ahead and make yourself a gay drink, you know what I mean? This is what I'm talking about, mate. I just want you to tell me things, you know? It just kills me to see you living a life. Look, fuck off. Seriously. Flipping it into this, like, veiled... it's, It's threatening, but it's couched in love. Mm. I think is so f- clever yeah. and makes it stand out in a, in a more interesting way because you know that this guy will use emotions mm. and doesn't really feel them. Like he'll, yeah. he'll say, I love you, but he doesn't mean it. And he's just playing with his insecurities because he's put on a pink shirt. Yeah. He knows his like crazy brothers are like thinking about him wearing a pink shirt mm-hmm. to the, f- it's to the funeral, right? 
Uh, no, it's pre-funeral, I think. Mm. Uh, it's before that. It's for some reason. I don't know why he's wearing the shirt. Yeah, but, <laughs> but he's like really going in. It's that domineering thing of just like keeping someone on edge with the mm. insecurities. And you can tell this is how he's controlled his younger he's brother his entire life. Yeah. Yeah, there's another great moment um, where I think you get to see Pope's like sickening psychopathic manipulation. Mm. And it's, you know, we're going to jump ahead a little bit here, but... When, when the two brothers are in jail, mm. when they've been accused of or caught um, shooting the two police officers and they're in jail, Smurf says to Pope, take care of your younger brother in mm. here, will you? Make sure nothing happens to him. Mm. And you see it dawn on his face that he's like, I could sell my brother out to mm. the tough guys in here. And that would break my mum's heart mm. and that would force her to try and get us out of jail. Yeah. So he kind of implies to his mum, like, I can't, I can't protect him in here. Yeah. You know, you better get us out of here because this is a rough place mm. and they could do some horrible things to your little baby boy. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. Psychopathic, but beautifully performed mm. by everyone in the scene. Oh, I love it. And the the brothers are so interesting because they have just like a different dynamic, all of them. Because I would say the Luke Ford character, he is the most rational. He is the most tender. He's the nice one. The nice one, the most easily manipulated. For a fucking dipshit who doesn't do anything. And but I think that's the thing is, he's just like, he's captured in. He's mm. like not, he's barely related to these guys, it feels like. Yeah. He's like from a different generation to these other two brothers. <clears throat> yeah. He's closer in age to his younger young nephew mm. uh and he i think he's just like completely different but he's just grown up in like this pack of fucking animals mm. that have drawn him in and he has no way to leave them yeah and he doesn't have any other friends perhaps apart from his family and he's just stuck there with them but i think the sullivan stapleton character who plays craig the middle brother i guess yeah is classic middle brother by the way absolutely classic he's a classic <laughs> middle brother he's i'm watching this and going is this freaking jan brady i'm watching in this family <laughs> classic middle sibling is this race from malcolm in the middle he's acting out trying to get everyone to notice him yep but um i think that performance is one that i really love now yeah because i see like the nuance of like his like his angle of like the psychopathy that he captures because mm. he's like overtly the most crazy one. He's the coke one. The coke fiend, the most unpredictable, but they make so much about his character and the way that Sullivan Stapleton plays it is so likable mm. in that he is kind of creating the fun of he's like what of the larrican. family is. He's closest to a larrikin. <laughs> of any character in this movie, he might be the larrikin. He's the larrikin of this movie. <laughs> but he's like, you know, the so like inviting thing, like the way that he kind of creates a fun. He's like, mm. oh God, I don't want to kiss my mum on the fucking lips again and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. He's easily manipulated, the most high wire. There's a great scene in this Chinese restaurant where they all go out to oh, yeah. and he starts smoking a dari. Yeah. And dari is a cigarette in australia okay <laughs> i actually don't know where it comes from i think it's shortened from dart which is shorter than dari yeah and dart is just because it looks like a dart okay <laughs> the way you smoke a cigarette is similar to <laughs> when you're like lining you're up a dart. a dart yes okay i think that's where it comes from but we lengthen it out to dari in australia okay 
And so he's smoking a durry in the Chinese restaurant, and they're like, "Oh, you have to put that." Out. I was like, "Oh, just a minute." It's just yeah. like, I think it's he's scary in this movie. Mm. Hey, you just reminded me of something. Mm. Each of the three brothers um, have a different drug associated with them, oh. and they all sort of say what their personality is. Don't you think? Like Craig is the cokehead; he's doing coke throughout the movie, dealing it. Pope is a heroin user, which is like a death wish, which is what Pope seems to have. Like he doesn't care if he lives or dies. And Darren, Luke Ford's character, is smoking bongs all through mm. the movie, which is laziness. It's like apathy. It's someone who won't do anything. They'll just sit on the lounge and watch someone get murdered. It's interesting. I wonder if that was a choice they all made when mm. they discussed it or if, it just, if we've just tapped into that. But anyway. Tapped into that vein, if you will. Yes, indeed. So those are the three brothers. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about... Um, Let's talk a bit about Smurf. We've touched on her a little mm-hmm. bit. The kissing on the lips, very important symbol in this film of dominance. Yeah. It has eatable overtones. Mm-hmm. She kisses all of her sons. It's like a lingering kiss. It's sensual. It's sensual, yes. And the moment that Jay lets her kiss him on the lips is the moment that he is in the family. Mm. Um, but I also want to say that the woman that this is based on, Kath Pettingill, hated Jackie Weaver's performance <laughs> in this film. She says, uh, Jackie Weaver and I only have one thing in common. Neither of us can act. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's such a great catty line wow, from this crime so boss woman. She also says she's... um continually telling her boys to come and give her a kiss and then planting one of her mouths. It was disgusting. No mother behaves like that, Mm. which is true, hopefully. Yes. (laughs) But I think it works really well in this movie. I actually, Mm. I remember at the time that I saw it, I thought it was a bit on the nose, Mm. this kind of like Oedipal thing. But I actually really love it this time around. I think it's it's a point of difference and Mm. it adds this kind of, poetry or greek tragedy element to it like we're watching a tale as old as time this is three you know boys that have like been seduced by their own mother Mm. to do unspeakable things it's like borgia shit you know yeah borgia shit it's really i i think it's a really nice touch and i think if i if it was based on me i'd also hate it yeah so i get what cat pettingill's talking about (laughs) absolutely but i think it's i think i really like that touch and i think as well like even on the animal metaphor of what Mm. this film really is it's called freaking animal kingdom okay guys it does feel like that almost like regurgitating of like birds like how birds Mm. feed each other and i feel like it's almost like the way that she feeds like her family like her emotions and controls them and it feels like that sensualness of it is almost like the way that she calms them down is yeah. by like kind of kissing them on the mouth in that very slow way, yeah. that tender way that brings them back down to like out of their funks or out of like their tantrums. Yeah, that's interesting. It does. You see it with Craig's character a lot where he's hyper and then she kind of kisses him and it makes him take a breath and chill out. Um, I was kind of interested in reading you know what was based on reality and what was fictionalized um joel edgerton's in this film he's also a big reason the film got made um he was a star in australia not quite movie star level in in the u.s market yet but kind of one of our big guys 
And um, I remember him being billed pretty prominently in all the advertising mm. for this. He's in all the posters. He's yeah. featured very heavily. He was a big star here. And his production company with his brother, Blue Tongue Films, mm. was Which kind of... we'll probably be talking about quite a bit on this because yeah. they've made some great stuff. Absolutely. And I think they're very key in kickstarting this mm. way, new wave of independent cinema in Australia. Mm. Well, I mean, all film in Australia is pretty independent, but you know what I mean. Mm. Uh, but uh, they were producers behind this film as well, and they were kind of like in this gang with David Michaud, this little film gang. Yeah. So, Edjo gets pretty, like, kind of helps get this film its budget. Mm. Having his character die was, at the time for me, a... Uh, Psycho moment, like Absolutely. a Hitchcock psycho moment. I, exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I could not believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting in the cinema, a freaking eighteen-year-old boy when yeah. this happened. Yeah, I could not believe it when they killed Joe Edgerton. I could not. <laughs> Freaking believe it. My balls were blown out. Because you were like, this guy's the guy I know. He's He's the the guy from TV. He's famous. I've seen The Secret Life of Us. Yeah. I know he's famous. He's in all the posters. He's He's freaking dating Kathy Freeman. The guy's famous. He's in a celebrity couple. In my head, I'm like, this movie's just going to be about this guy trying to get out of this crime family that he's affiliated with. I thought this was a straight time movie. I thought this was a going, getting square type movie. This yeah. guy is going straight he's on the narrow. He's getting into the stock market. Yes. He's using his drug money, his blood money, laundering it yeah. through the stock market. The guy's inventing freaking Bitcoin. I guess we're going to watch him as he finally escapes mm-hmm. the clutches of this thing. His character dies like not even half an hour into the movie. It's exactly. fucking early. He gets shot by a fucking cop. Okay. Did you know that that is based on reality? That is the one thing that I thought would be based on reality. I thought that that would be... I thought that whole character mm. would have been a confection of the mind wow. of David Michaud. That he created this guy who's like, at his heart, a good guy. Mm-hmm. Who wants to get out. And yeah, he's done some armed robbery and shit in the past. But you know what? He wants to get in the stock market now. But... He dies and that sets the chain of events. Mm. Not true. This guy is based on a real guy wow. called Graham Jensen, who was an affiliate of the Pettingills and who was being staked out by the cops and followed by the mm. cops. And they shot him at a shopping center. And one of them yelled, he's got a gun when he didn't have a gun. And they killed him. And that set into, uh, like, set the chain of events into what happens in this film. Wow. It's basically, this movie is basically a biopic. Well, that's what is interesting. Like that goes back to like what we talk about when we talk about the gangster genre is that it's a genre of societal issues, a Mm. genre of being ripped from the headlines. It's about presenting a a part of society to the masses through art that they often receive through news media. Mm. It's about finding the nuances and the stories and the thematic issues in those and speak to them. I think that like Australia has a rich history of it because we have a rich history of crime. We do. We do. I mean, I let's talk a bit about that the shooting sequence. It's kind of the main set piece mm. of the film, the cop shooting. Um and it's based on reality, so it's kind of mm. tough to I don't want to talk about it in too sensationalist ways because it's pretty I would just say that Touchy. part of the way that this film builds tension is through quiet and slow moments. Mm. I think that's a key factor in this movie is 
finding tension in slowing things down. Mm. Not directly through slow motion, though we do sometimes in this film, but just slow building moments. I think of the lead up to this moment, which is all then taking us through the eyes of these. this movie. She shifts perspective for a moment to be about these police officers so mm. that are about to go out on their patrol and they go across this car that we know has been stolen by mm-hmm. Jay mm-hmm. Uh, to be a setup for something. And so these cops go out and they find the car and it builds to a revenge moment where the brothers masked kill these cops. And it builds so slowly because we see their everyday life going out on patrol Then mm. they come across the car. And they're fucking young kids. Very young. I don't know how old the actors were they cast in this. The real guys were mm. in their early 20s. Yeah. But when you see these actors who are playing the cops, they, they look like they're fucking 16. Yeah. It's actually pretty fucking it's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. Yeah, and we're living in a time right now where it's cool to say a cap. But yeah. I was watching this movie being like, you know what? Some cops are just young boys. Yeah. <laughs> All cops are boys at their heart. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm looking at these kids, yeah. that's what I'm saying. They're boys. Okay. Yeah, I'm saying scab. Some cops are boys. Some cops are boys. And they're scabs. And they're scabs. <laughs> But like that build up where you see them investigating the car, just so quiet. Like mm. the the score kind of disappears. Mm. And there's another moment later on where it kind of builds with those that idea of tension where uh, where a shot sustains for a long time uh, is when a ca- the car is moving and we know that Pope is on his way to get Jay. And we've got Clayton Jacobson playing his girlfriend's dad backing out of the driveway Mm. and just this one long sustained shot as the car gets further away from the camera and you're just in your head you're going i know that i know exactly what's gonna happen i know exactly what's gonna happen and then it doesn't happen it cuts and then you're inside the car and then things are okay like we've done it and then that impact happens like seconds later yeah i think this film is so much about slowly building that tension and then releasing it at the least expected points. Definitely. There's a couple of moments, I think, where in the back half of this movie... So the the back kind of half hour is dealing with the ramifications of the shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of the brothers go to jail. Jay is put in witness protection because he gives evidence against them. And then he kind of feels pressure from the family to retract his... Uh, evidence and mm. kind of help get his brothers out of jail. I think there's parts there. The film turns into a procedural, like a lawyer procedural mm. film that I like. It's like I, an out of courtroom drama. Yeah, it is an out of courtroom drama. And I, I like it, but I also, I feel like it loses momentum for me. Mm. There's, I have to just say that. Mm. There are parts from that final half hour that I thought I was getting confused by what was happening and what the motivations of each character were. Mm. And I think it's all clear logically, especially since I've now read about what really happened and I can see that they've just like like contracted real mm. life and put it into half an hour there. But I was feeling confused in that yeah. part. I was kind of like, hang on a second. So like the lawyer, he's corrupt, mm. but he's trying to get Jay to like seem like a shit witness yeah so that the boys get out of jail but who are these other cops who are trying to kill jay are they actually cops or are they gangsters dressed up as cops that have been employed by it was all getting a bit too confusing for me i think now that i i see it differently now i think that would have been something that i had a problem with as far to me this is a perfect movie i love this movie uh but it 
would be the least exciting part of this movie. Mm. But now I see it differently because watching it again with these fresh eyes, I am in the... I, I like to watch movies and think about perspective a lot now. Sure. And this movie is very clearly a POV movie. It's a movie from a certain point of view. And we see mostly this entire world uh, of Animal Kingdom through the perspective of James Freshwell's character who plays Jay, mm-hmm. the nephew, the grandson, mm-hmm. whose mum dies at the start of the film, which is an incredible start to this film yeah it almost feels like a dissection of like the bleakness of australian cinema which are like yeah. these suburban housing commission that's a, flats that's the whole scene is a mission statement mm-hmm. it's the, exactly what i love in a scene of a movie his mum's dead on the couch and he has to enter this world yeah and i think that the for the first kind of half of this movie we are led through this world through his eyes through his narration he's this observer and I think this is us unlocking who he is in the Cody family. Mm. His mother was estranged, so he doesn't know these people very well. And now he's back in with, with them. And we talk about um, the other brothers being psychopaths, talking about one of them being uh, one of them being like lesser, being the kind of like the goober of the family. And then we have Ben Mendelsohn being like this kind of like survivalist manipulator and then having the matriarch being this overt manipulator this puppeteer i think that we start to the the narration slips away and we start to just be following this character rather than being inside him Mm -hmm. and being from his perspective once we see him put everything together that oh they've killed my girlfriend Mm. oh they've uh now they're trying to kill me we start to un- slowly understand who, how his role in this family is, like what his skill is, if you will. Mm. And from being the observer, he becomes someone who has like a complete understanding of everyone around him and then kind of, kind of be not a manipulator, but like a cunning, almost like the thief, like the person mm. that can kind of sneak and weave their way through the family mm. to get the outcome that is most beneficial to him if you will, the snitch. Interesting. Like he be kind of becomes mm. that sneaker yeah. snitch character. He's like the actor. He's the one who can like, he's playing the role of mm. like the dumb little nephew, but he's actually kind of very across. He knows everyone else's lines. And he is not really, he's not manipulative of people. Everyone else in this film mm. is manipulative of people. We kind of a represent, he's represented almost as someone that lacks social skills, this character. Mm. He uh, kind of has difficulty reading social situations or reading like the emotions of people. And he's kind of like this brick wall that breaks at one point where his emotions just bust out of him. Mm. And uh, he goes from being cold to becoming quite like, quite emotional. And then I think that, he doesn't manipulate people. He manipulates the situation. Yeah, very true. I wanted to. I'll tell you two films that uh, the cinematographer Adam Akapor mm. referenced. Uh, he said that him and Michaud talked a lot about these two particular films mm-hmm. that would define uh, the tone and the look of this film. And I think as soon as I saw these two, the back half hour started to make sense yeah. for me as to what type of film I had just watched. Mm. Heat? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it captures... Australia has a very unique sunlight, that golden Mm. sunlight. Mm -hmm. And it can also be very dark, like a kind of grayy blue is the other kind of color that Australia can find naturally in its light Mm. and surroundings. 
I think it captures heat in a very Australian way using those colours. And also, you know, if you think about Heat is a film that uh, uses fucking like multiple different groups Mm. of actors uh, that all kind of come together at certain parts. The back half hour of Animal Kingdom has all of these people that we've met at the start of the film coming together, Mm. the lawyers coming back, the shady like cop that was buying Mm. drugs is coming back with a task force. There's all these like elements coming together. The other film that they referenced a lot was Magnolia. (gasps) Um, And I think their big thing there was like, this is, even though it's largely told from Jay's perspective, it's an ensemble piece. Mm. Once I saw those two films written down, I went, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense a little bit. Mm. That's what, especially the last half hour of this film, it's like, it's a bit like Magnolia. We're getting everyone's story in bits and pieces, Mm. in fragments, and then it's only at the very end that we realise that it was actually all a bit of a ploy by Jay. Mm. Like he was... He was the one in charge. We didn't see it because we were just seeing it like a mosaic. And then once you step back, you're like, oh, look, yeah, he he wanted to get them out so that he could get fucking revenge. He mm. finally stepped up and became what the alpha fucking predator. Absolutely. And I got to say, when I was young and I saw this film, I thought at that final moment of the film when Jay does what he does and then walks out of the room, I thought... Wow, finally he's out. He's out of the crime family. Mm. He's just going to go and be a normal kid now. But on this viewing, I was like, fuck, he's now the, He's now in. He's Michael. Yeah, he's Michael. There's no way out. Michael Corleone, not John Travolta's <laughs> angel Michael. <laughs> yeah, but I just it was definitely a moment this time around where mm. I thought there's no way out for this guy. He's yeah. now like more in than ever before. Before we get into the categories, I'd love to shout out something that I noticed for the first time watching this film for what would probably be, I guess, like the 40th time I've seen it. I've mm. watched this movie a lot. This, at one point in time, would have been my favorite movie I'd ever seen. Hmm. There's something really interesting in those opening credits. Sure, we see that bronze copper art piece that represents the lions in their pride. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then the rest of the opening titles are overlaid over this kind of montage of screenshots from CCTV footage of armed robberies, presumably the armed robberies that this family notoriously committed. Yeah. Um, I think that is something that I've never really paid attention to. And then kind of going in on it this time and just going, this is such a brilliant way to show us who these guys are. Because you don't, you kind of, you hear that they're armed robbers. But you never see you it. You don't really know what that is unless you see it. Yeah. I think it's a great way to have that in this movie in a way that feels very much like the way that we would consume it as people that live around these people mm. through the media. These are the pictures that we'd be seeing of an armed robbery. It's mm-hmm. the pictures we do see of armed robberies when they happen in this country. And they use that as a way to just tell you who they are, but they never glamorize the crimes in this movie because you don't see them. This is movies about robbers where there's no heist. We never Mm. see like something exciting and incredibly cinematic like that. We understand who they are the way that we do in society, which they are criminals. Yeah. They are not exciting. They're not bandits. They're not like Robin Hoods. They're not Ned Kelly's. Uh, but they are just criminals. And we see them the way that we see criminals in this society. Which is just grainy, stationary, black and white CCTV footage. Mm. 
that doesn't look cool, doesn't look glamorous. Mm-hmm. It just looks clumsy. Dudes with stockings over their heads mm-hmm. pointing guns at cashiers in bottle shops and stuff like that. I also think that adds an element of reality to yeah. the film so that when you're watching it, you can't help but go, this is this is happening in, real, in a real world mm. or in our world. And it also points me back to something that I was saying at the start that the uh, costume designer Cappy Island said, which is that they wanted to uh, design the houses and the costumes to not feel stylized, to not feel real. Mm. And in that way, it becomes even more sinister because you could just be living next door to murderers and bank robbers and criminals and they just look like the average piece of shit guy in a polo shirt and jeans who you see at the cafe or the Chinese restaurant. Absolutely. And I think that's why it fucking works. It doesn't look look glamorous. It just looks, like, real. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is kind of one of the master strokes of this movie. Hell yeah, and I had a master stroke watching this movie. That is beautiful to hear you (laughs) paying such tribute to Australian art. (laughs) Let's move into our categories, Mm -hmm. dude. So I think we got to give some Oscars out. We have to. And now these are not your typical Oscars. No. These are your Oscars. Okay, very cool. So you've taken the AUS from Australia Mm -hmm. and applied it to Oscar, the beloved bald gold statue. Absolutely. We give to our greatest, greatest actors (laughs) and filmmakers. And we give it out. So we are making it Aussie. So it's not just a little bald guy with a golden plate on him. Uh This is probably a guy that's a bit of a dag, a bit of a larrikin, if you will. A bit of a darrow. He's probably wearing a dirty singlet Mm. and some fucking footy shorts. In my head, the Oscar, it's Mm. still bald, but it's Angry Anderson from Rose Tattoo. (laughs) (laughs) Completely dipped in gold. Yeah. To scale. (laughs) (laughs) He's quite a miniature little fella. (laughs) So we should give out a character actor Oscar Mm -hmm. first. Um, And there are some magnificent Australian character actors in this (laughs) movie. You know who we haven't even fucking talked about yet is Guy Pearce is in this movie. Oh, my God. (laughs) We didn't even say his name. We didn't say his name once. Oh, God. And you know what? I'd I'd be on the verge of describing him as a character actor. But do you know why I would not? Because he's in Iron Man 3. He is chameleonic, (laughs) which is almost the opposite of a character actor. That's very true. That's very true. He's a... He's a true actor who disappears into his roles. Mm-hmm. He's never really been a movie star, even though he fucking could be. Yes. Although he, they tried to make him one for a brief Every period. Every now and then they tr- they try. They muck around with it. I think he's fantastic. And he's I think fantastic he's a hottie. He's a hottie. He's a hottie. He's apparently great in Mayor of Easttown, which everyone's raving about at the moment, yes. which I have not watched. Yes, the only two people not raving about it, Cameron and I. We're the only people that haven't seen it. Yes, and you know what? I might say that way. I'll probably watch it in 10 years' time mm. and then I'll be on this podcast being like, oh. guys, check out Mayor of Easttown. It's so oh, good. Oh, guys, you might have missed the buzz 10 years ago, <laughs> but let me tell you, it's awesome. It's got freaking Guy Pearce in it of all people. <laughs> so we won't, uh, I mean, we'll just pay a little bit of respect to Guy Pearce. Yes, He's we love you, Guy Pearce. We love you, Guy. Obviously, we think you're great. You play Lecky. Yep, Detective Lecky. Detective Lecky and critic Alexi loves it too. Lecky's loves Lecky. But we're not here to give you an Oscar, dude. Mm -hmm. We're here to give it out to a character actor. Mm -hmm. Someone who I think has appeared in in multiple Australian productions every year for the last few decades. 
Always a delight whenever I see them on the screen. And on the street. I have seen this guy in real life. Yes. I uh, have met this guy. I would also say that this actor embodies the idea of a supporting actor in this country. Yeah. The way that someone like, you know, a Paul Giamatti mm. or a Harvey Keitel does in America. Yeah. Where they, or like in Hollywood legends like that, yeah. where they, oh, Steve Buscemi, if mm-hmm. you will, mm-hmm. someone who completely embodies someone who is like an ensemble player. Yeah, so I've uh, I've just been watching the Mystery Road TV mm-hmm. series and he's in that in a supporting role. And every time he's on screen, I say his name. Yeah. Which is the sign of when I love a character yes. actor. If I just like can't help but say their name. Well, out let loud. me quote the never-ending story and scream it at you as my planet falls apart around me. Say his name. His name is Anthony Hayes. We call him Tony. Tony I call Hayes. him Tony Hayes sometimes. Yes, always I call him Tony Hayes. I've never said Anthony and Hayes together. I always say Tony Hayes. I call him Tony Hayes, but he's always credited as Anthony Hayes. Mm-hmm. So I don't know where I got the balls to say Tony. Absolutely. Like, and and I got to tell you, when I met him mm-hmm. at the, a pub one time, I saw him. He was having a beer by himself. He was must have been waiting for a mate. God, yep. maybe it was one of these guys. <laughs> maybe he's waiting for freaking Joel Edgerton. <laughs> For God's sake. And that's one of the most Australian things you could say. Yeah, he's waiting for a mate. It's <laughs> it actually is. a meme in Australia. It's also very a very Aussie thing to say is that you are having a succulent Chinese meal. Yeah, there's a lot of great there's Aussie a lot of great Aussie, Aussie memes, guys. That we don't we have time to get into. But I, I said to my friend Tom, I'm gonna walk over there and say <gasps> hi to Tom. Tom Hudson? Hayes. Yes. Shout like, out to Tom Hudson. Also loves Tony Hayes. <laughs> Tom Hudson, <laughs> we're giving you an honorary Oscar in this miniseries as well as a great Aussie filmmaker. And you know what? When I'm gonna say this about Tom Hudson, he's a great filmmaker and a friend of ours. Um, also a very handsome guy. Reminds mm. me of David Michaud. And I, Absolutely. I, every time I see him, I think you got to get out there in front of the camera. Get brother. in front of the camera. Stop being so behind it. Yes. Flip it around. Do a selfie, Do brother. Do a selfie movie. <laughs> Do a selfie, please. So I, I walked over to Tony Hayes wow. and I said, excuse me, Mr. Hayes, I'm a big fan of your work. <laughs> and he went, oh, really? He was genuinely wow. shocked to be approached at the pub. Wow. And I said, yeah, I love you. I love the boys. I love West, mm. you know. <gasps> I, love, I love West. And uh, I listed a couple of things and he went, oh, thanks, mate. Cheers. <laughs> the first compliment he's ever received. He, got, like, he was genuinely <laughs> wow. like surprised and happy. And then I just went, anyway, have a nice night. And I walked back to my group of friends. He's going to his friends like, you're not going to believe this. I got recognized. <laughs> yeah, he might have. <laughs> He's like someone who literally won back-to-back AFI Best Supporting Actor Awards. I remember it watching it on TV. <laughs> he won Best Supporting for Suburban Mayhem, which oh, maybe we'll talk so about goodness. at some point in this series. We fucking should. We should. In fact, one of our buddies is in that film too. So Dead we... Elite. Yeah, Dead Elite. Of the elite. So we should, we should talk about this. And then also he won that one the year later. He won for the William McInnes movie Look Both Ways. Oh fuck! Which is Very one cool. of those hyperlink Magnolia type yeah. movies. He won Best Supporting for that back to back. I remember I was in high school when it happened. Mm. I remember going like, "Fuck, this guy's gonna be huge. <laughs> this guy's gonna be huge." Because I just didn't. I don't think I understood fully the concept of like a supporting ensemble utilitarian player like that. Yeah. But ever since then, I remember just going like. Tony Hayes is one of my guys. Uh, he's one of my guys. And in this movie... We've never talked about him, by Oh, way. God, but I he's love... One, he's one of my guys, too. I think we have only <laughs> ever talked about him. Whenever you and I are making something, Tony Hayes is always on my list of actors. Like, can we get Tony Hayes somehow? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Always is on my list. I think he's on everyone's list in Australia. Like, I never everyone, met him. 
No, well, I met him at the pub. Yeah, you call him Mr. Hayes. <laughs> if I meet him, I'm going, Tone. Hey, Tone, nice to meet you, brother. Hey, T. <laughs> Loved you in the freaking role that you played yourself in. You played AFI award-winning actor Tony Hayes in Review with Mars Barlow. Oh, he did too. He did too. He played did himself. Too. Yep. That's one of the best reveals ever. You got to watch Review with Miles Barlow to get the full Tony Hayes experience. In this movie, he just plays a cop. Like he just plays. But he gets a great. Uh, he gets a couple of good scenes, mm-hmm. but a particularly great scene where he's flicking water at a sleeping Jay yes. in a really menacing way, and uh, Jay wakes up and you know he just he gets a couple of words in with mm. him that are pretty fucking tense, yeah. and it's a really good use of him in that moment. I want to see him used more. Mm-hmm. I like I love him in The Boys, yes. which I'm sure is a movie we're going to talk about. Either full episode or some, it'll come up every single time, basically, yeah, we talk I, about this topic. I feel like we should devote a movie, uh, an episode to it because mm-hmm. it is, it's pretty fucking hectic. He's also in The Square. Oh, God. I mean, can, he's... My he's, Lord, can I give another uh, Oscar out right now? This is a separate Oscar. Mm. This is one that we didn't plan. This is an Oscar for one of the most hectic editors ever. This goes to Luke Doolan, who's the editor of Animal Kingdom. He's the editor of The Square. He was at Afters when I was there, just after this movie came out. Fuck. I think he might have been doing directing or something. Yeah. Or continuing on, on in editing or teaching editing or something. But he's a bit of an Afters legend. I remember just being seeing him around a lot. And just being so shy around him because I was like fucking 18 years old. Yeah. And we're like, God, that's the guy from Animal Kingdom. That's the guy that edited Animal Kingdom. That's the guy that edited The Square. He's one of the Blue Tongue gang. I'm like, my God, I'm freaking out around him. But he is also fucking great. He uh, directed this short film called Miracle Fish, Hmm. which maybe you've seen. It's about like a school shooting invader in Australia. Oh, yeah. And he's got that little cellophane fish thing. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Great short film. Film. Yeah. I think it might have even been Oscar nominated. That Shit, short film. I, f- I totally forgot about he that was, film. Oh, it was Oscar nominated best uh, right. best short film. That was him. He also did second unit directing on The Great Gatsby, Fuck which me. was around that time yeah. I was in film school as well. Yeah. But I I just think this guy's an absolute legend. He's edited some of the best like Australian films in like really a long time. He even directed Colossal. That um, mm. uh, what's it called? Uh, who directed Nacho Vigalondo uh, with Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis uh-huh. about like that Godzilla type yeah, thing. Yeah, I never saw it, but... Uh, really you know, cool movie. That's cool. But Luke Doolan, you get a little honorary Oscar from us here on the You're podcast. You're getting an honorary Oscar, Lukey. And I think it's important that we give one of our special category Oscars mm-hmm. out right now to, a, to an iconic moment in this film. We should give out an Oscar to a moment that has redefined a classic song. Mm. Anytime I see a cheesy pop song or a ballad used on screen at a moment of tension mm-hmm. or high drama or sleaze in a way that's opposite to the song, yes. I feel something. Yes. It works on me every fucking time. And I think this movie does it in a way that is post-Scorsese, mm-hmm. post-Tarantino, mm-hmm. in a way that feels uniquely Australian. Yeah. But also pure in its sinisterness and Fuck grounded me. in its diegetic nature. Mm. You can hear it in the world. It is happening live. So the scene is Pope is sitting on the lounge. It's 
we were assuming it's fucking early hours of the morning. Rage is on. Yes, we would assume that he is watching Rage, <laughs> the watching classic Rage. Australian music video program that airs very early in the morning on ABC, free yeah. to air, commercial free channel. We are sitting in the hallowed halls of the ABC as we record That's this. True. We are. The home of Rage. The home of Rage, 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 Rage. So Pope is watching Rage uh, on the lounge. Ne- uh, next to him, Jay is asleep and mm-hmm. his girlfriend is asleep. They're it's both- probably guest curated by Anthony Albanese <laughs> or something like that. Opposition leader who does that kind of stuff. Back in these days, it probably was more likely to be like Friends of Rome or mm. Tism or something. Oh, like God. That. The doctor's in the house <laughs> yeah. and he's programming Rage. And that's why we've got a classic 80s hit. <laughs> the song uh, All Out of Love by Air Supply comes mm-hmm. on the TV and... It's like a, it's a very cheesy, fun ballad mm-hmm. of a song and beautiful bit of camera work here. The camera sort of starts angled on the TV, works its way around. We're seeing those two gorgeous fellas from Air Supply. Mm-hmm. We see those guys. The camera angles itself around. We see the young couple asleep on the lounge. Then it pans finally around to Ben Mendelsohn sitting on the lounge looking drugged up, looking drunk. And we see that he's staring at the TV and then his gaze shifts over to Jay and Jay's 17-year-old girlfriend who are asleep. Played by Laura Wheelwright. Great performance Great in this performance. movie. And then he just continues to stare at her and her face and her mm. hair and her body while the song plays. And his look turns to a sneer. It turns to a leer. Very predatory. It's fucking gross. It mm. goes for so long. And then there's that hard cut to him carrying her body into the bedroom mm. where you're just like, I mean, my, I still get caught yeah. up. My, I, I didn't breathe for that whole two minute yeah. sequence. Cause I'd kind of forgotten where it went, you know, I'm yeah. like, holy shit. Is this, are we going to watch something really vile happen mm-hmm. right now? And, you know, obviously there's a moment like this. It's just a very beautiful, tense, terrifying and slimy moment that's performed wonderfully by all of them. And the button on the fucking scene when Jay catches Uh. Pope putting the girl down on the bed and Pope realises that he's been caught and he just says to Jay, She's beautiful, man. I'm going to fucking puke. That was such a wretched moment. Oh, This is all tension, Mm. all slime. Holy shit. And just shows like that's him beginning to control Jay as well now. Yeah, yeah. Just showing like, look, I can... I can dominate at any moment. Mm. Really scary shit. So we'll give an Oscar to you guys and to Air Supply. Good on you for mm-hmm. writing a great song that would be used in an absolute puke fest yeah. later on. Absolutely. And if Tony Hayes somehow is listening to this, brother. Love you, brother. Love you, man. <laughs> love you, man. You're fucking you awesome, brother. I fucking think you're awesome, man. Oh, God. I, please be in a project of ours. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So... It's time to totally reboot Mm -hmm. this film. Tragically, I mean, I've never watched it, but it has already been rebooted. For American audiences. (laughs) That's true. It's been rebooted. I remember the moment I realized that it had been adapted into Mm. an American crime show for like, I don't even know what fucking network. Yeah. Like, what would it be? Fucking. Showtime, I reckon. My guess is Showtime. All right. My guess is like whatever Burn Notice is on. Oh, USA. Yeah, like one of those fucking networks. Let's have a look and see what it is. Animal Kingdom TV series. <gasps> what channel? What network? 
TNT. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think that might be a burn notice. That might be a burn notice. Yeah, it's just like one of those sort of sub-tier mm. drama networks. K- cable. Basic cable. Yeah, and basic is a freaking slur the way that I'm using it. <laughs> so there's like four seasons of this show mm. and it's all the characters have the same name, but it's American now. Where it's, is it set? I think it's set in like Venice Beach or something mm. like that. It's a... Uh, yeah, and it's about the Cody family, who are a crime family, who live in Venice Beach, and uh, mm-hmm. they all do crimes and shit like that. I caught a bit of it on TV once when I'm flicking those channels, right? And I found it so interesting because it looks Australian. They've really adapted the cinematography. The lighting looks very Australian in that kind of like silvery mid-afternoon way or mm. mid-morning way that like Animal Kingdom does look. And I found that shocking because I thought Australia only looked like that. Mm. To see it adapted to America was quite interesting. Mm. It's got a great cast. It's got Ellen Barkin. Yeah. But that's literally how I discovered it because I didn't know it existed at all. I feel like it was a secret kept from Australia that like our most beloved film was being translated to America. 100%. I... um. I didn't know it existed until two seasons were out Mm. already and I was on a plane Mm. and I was like going through the TV shows and I saw Animal Kingdom and I was like, what the fuck is this? And there was all of season one on there. And I just, I remember like looking around the plane, like, does anyone want to fucking explain what this is? (laughs) We are Australians and we're being mocked right now. Do you have any idea? Like, because I think I was in America at Mm. the time and it's so frustrating when you can't Google something on a plane. And I was like, just trying to catch people's eye. Like, someone explain what the fuck is going on like six years later that this, it's a TV series version of it. I I watched the first five minutes of episode one Mm. and it's like identical to the opening shot of... Of Animal Kingdom, the film, and I it really had an uncanny valley moment where I couldn't continue. Where I kind of, it's like when you watch the American Office pilot yeah. and you already know the UK one, and you're like, "What the? F- this feels so weird." Yeah. To see this dialogue and these beats played out slightly off, very strange. The only times I've ever come across it in some kind of way as well was literally yesterday. I was with my cousin at fucking. His grandmother, my great aunt's funeral, mm-hmm. and we had to ride in the hearse because there was no other cars. Wow. And so we were talking, we we're catching up, we we're talking about movies and film. We never two people that never shut the fuck up, me and my cousin. <laughs> and he's like going like, Man, I love the show Animal Kingdom. I only just found out it's a movie. I'm like, what is oh it just blew God. my mind. Like, you gotta watch the movie. It's one of the best movies ever. I, I can't remember how it came up, but he was talking about like, yeah, talking about how he's binging shows. He's like, I just did Animal Kingdom again. I'm like, Again? <laughs> He's like, I just did Animal Kingdom again. That's it's like so finding out good. someone's watched Suits twice. <laughs> well, you know, maybe one day I will check it out because I do love California stuff. Mm. But in my head, it's going to be like Sons of Anarchy or something. Like, it's just going to be a sub tier crime show. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Mm-hmm. We're here to talk about what we would do if mm. we were given the rights to the Animal Kingdom. Yes. If we're given the keys to the Animal Kingdom, <laughs> as it were. Yeah, because what would you do? Because instinctually, I would be like, well, let's remake it for American audiences. That's how we would do that. It's already been done. Uh, it's already been done, and Scott Speedman's in it. Yeah. Oh, fuck. Okay, maybe I'll watch it. I've barely seen him in enough things, and I do like Scott Speedman. Hey, do you know who? Who is in it that um, actually caught my eye? Sean Hatosi, who is an actor that you and I both really shat on and said, this guy's not a movie star. This guy's not charismatic. He's in The Faculty. He plays the jock in The Faculty. Oh, yeah. 
And when we watched it together, we were like, this guy does not have the charisma. No, no, he no. is a TV actor. He's a TV actor. And he plays Pope in uh, Animal Kingdom. Wow, good on you, TV so maybe boy. maybe he is a TV actor. Some people flourish on TV. Yeah. And hopefully he's one of them. Because yeah. that's an iconic role that you're stepping into the shoes of. You're putting that little Pope cap on. Yeah, very interesting. So if you're going to drive the Pope and Beale around, I hope you're <laughs> fucking well equipped. <laughs> and the Pope was very well equipped, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yes, and let's me tell you this. He does shit in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we just, actually how we got the nickname, okay? Pope does shits in the woods. And they named him after that misheard saying. Uh, but maybe another way they would look at it, when we've been done the, doing these total reboot segments in the past, often we look to a sequel. And I think that this film could perhaps, that could be a direction something goes in. Because David Michaud hits really big with this film. Uh, then he goes to the Rover, which did not critically gain as much traction as this film. Mm-hmm. I caught up with that film maybe a year after it came out, and I think it is just as good as Animal Kingdom. I think it is a fantastic sophomore film. Yeah, right. It is a brilliant new modern take of that Mad Max Australian uh, apocalyptic world. Great actors in it. It's, it's Guy Pierce, right? Uh, Guy Pierce and Robert Pattinson. Great. Love and I them think both. Scoot McNary. Love Scoot. I think he's in it. And if not, I he has the feeling of someone that would be <laughs> in it. He should be in it. Scoot <laughs> McNary definitely will win a character actor Oscar one day. Absolutely. Us. It's unavoidable. He is America's <laughs> answer to none other than Tony Hayes himself. He is. He's America's he Tony Hayes. But then, um, but then he makes two international movies. He makes War Machine with yeah. Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. That's a Netflix film. Then he makes another film on Netflix, The King, with Tony, mm-hmm. with little Timmy Chalamet and yeah. Rob Pattinson once again. Mm-hmm. Is it Macbeth or is it King Lear or it's Hamlet? It's the King Henry uh, films, I think. King Henry, yeah, I, okay. Oh, sorry, plays, yeah. It's yes. three or four Shakespeare King Henry plays. I think he wrote it with Edgerton. I believe so. Yeah. I've heard them talk about it. Right, yeah, interesting. In Q and A's, in podcasts. Yeah, you know? I haven't seen it, but I uh, people were raving about it. Mm. So maybe I will give that a watch. Yes, let's watch it together someday. That sounds great. Uh, but because his first film had such a huge impact on the world of film in Australia, I feel like that's something that often leads to later on in life, or like a little further down the line, two decades perhaps, where they return to that material again. Mm. We see it every now and then, like Train Spotting. Yep. We just got T2 train spotting like what, probably 20 years ago by the time <laughs> I think about it. <laughs> it came out a long time ago now, it feels like. Yeah. But um, yeah. also, like Kevin Smith does this. Kevin he returns Smith. To the, he's a viewer of Skew Universe. He's every gone then. back after years of living in Jersey Girl and doing <laughs> Red State, your tasks. He did return to the Skew Universe. Yeah, very exciting. So, you think it, you, you'd like to see that? You'd like to see David Michaud kind of return to the well? Well, I could see it happening, and yeah. I would wonder what you would even be able to do. Well, I'll tell you what I would like to do with it. If I was to get in David Michaud's ear, I would say, mm-hmm. listen. <laughs> I'd say this country has a rich history of true crime mm-hmm. that you can pull from, much yes. in the way you did with this one, where you, 
You're Remember how you did that? You're inspired by like one story, yes. but you also pulled from other ones as well. Of course, there's an air of the Carl Williams about your movie. I think you could do that with another part of the country. Mm-hmm. You could do it with Queensland or New South Wales or Perth. And yes. you could just take one character from this film. Mm-hmm. You could take Guy Pearce's <gasps> Detective Lecky. Yeah. It's 20 years down the line. He's a little older, a little mm-hmm. grayer, a little more grizzled. Yeah. Maybe some bad things have happened to him. Yeah. This time around, he's not a supporting player. He's the lead of a mystery. Wow, okay. I like a hard-boiled detective movie. Yeah, and he's like trying to he's trying to really crack a really particularly vile case somewhere. Oh, okay. Who are we casting around him? Well, I mean, because in my head, this is like an Elmore Leonard type mm-hmm. thing now where we've taken a minor character and turned them into a big guy. So well, I let want... me to, uh, throw it this way. Uh, justify your choices. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to... Who I want to see in there, I want to see Tony Hayes come back. As the same character? Same character. As Detective Norris? Same character, but he's maybe veered off into corrupt cop territory. Because he kind of is like, I reckon he's snitching within the cops. Yeah. I think he's snitching. He may not be a puppeteer, but he's snitching. I want him to be full corrupt cop Mm -hmm. at this point, and he's a bit of a villain. He's a bit of a Dodger, if you will. A Roger Dodger. Yeah, a bit of a Roger Rogerson. Maybe we base it off the Roger (gasps) Rogerson story. Whoa. So straight up, we're adapting Blue Murder once again. Again to yeah, the big screen. interesting. Roger Rogerson is the most corrupt cop in Australian history. Mm. He was the most decorated cop in New South Wales, the most decorated detective, mm-hmm. but he was also running drugs mm. and he was doing lots of bad stuff. He's locked. Oh, he's dead now. Yeah. Miss you, Rog. R.I.P.D., <laughs> brother. <laughs> Miss your eyes. Yeah, but you know, basically, I, I want pretty much every great Australian actor mm. in it, every great modern Australian actor. Let me throw some at you. I want Aaron Pedersen in it. Absolutely. Obviously, I want Aaron Pedersen in and it. And he can do anything. I yeah. would love him to do a more heroic character in this movie. That'd be nice. Because I've seen him do some wonderful villainous turns recently mm. um, in this great movie called, I think it's called The 1%. I haven't watched it yet, but it keeps coming up on my mm. Netflix. And he's really scary as a bikey in that yeah, movie. And then there's this kind of like uh, uh, he plays like a psycho killer out in the bushlands in this movie called Killing Grounds. Mm. Really scary. I would love to see him be the hero. Maybe he's freaking Guy Pierce's boss. Hell yeah. Get that going. Yeah. I want Tasma Walton in it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, fantastic actor. Mm-hmm. Who else do we want in there? I would love Alex Dimitriades. Yes, dude. I would love to get him in a big, big film role again. You know, it's funny. I've been saying recently, if I was given a bit of power in this industry, mm. I pretty much would only use it <laughs> to to like revive the careers mm. of people that I used to love watching yeah. from Heartbreak High. Absolutely. Like We're getting all those people back. <laughs> oh. uh, that's like, it would be wasted on me because I wouldn't develop any new talent. I'd just be like, no, no, no. We're getting all the old gang Heartbreak back together gang. and we're going to put them in crime shows now. Yeah, that's fun. Mm. That's cool. Speaking of, I want Callan Mulvey in it. Yeah, absolutely. What about bringing back some people that Guy Pearce has worked with extensively? Mm-hmm. What about Rusty? Oh We're going God. LA Confidential. Oh get Russell Crowe in. Yes. We're going Priscilla. Let get freaking Mr. Hugo Weaving in there. Holy shit. That yeah. would be, that's a movie. That's a go picture. And maybe Hugo Weaving plays his brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's cool. like, you know, fucking Thomas Leckie. 
Okay, look, I'm in. I'll buy it. I'll okay. watch this movie. It's about corrupt cops. Mm-hmm. It's like the Vega Brothers, okay? Yeah, I'll <laughs> fucking watch it. In fact, I, I don't even want to make it. I just want to watch it. Mm, absolutely. So good on you, David Michaud. Good luck with that premise. Take that premise away. It is... Where is he? He's in Queensland? Yeah, let's make it Queensland. It's Queensland. The tropics. The tropics. Beautiful the tropic end of Queensland. Yeah, it yes. looks so nice. He's sweating. We yeah. get that golden Australian sunlight. We, we get, get rainforest. Oh, yes. It's going to be so good. And what's the crime? Um... Um, there's got to be a corrupt cop up there mm-hmm. who's uh, running drugs yep. and Lecky's gone in to investigate it yep. and he gets caught up in like a scene of methy drug yes. running people in I the like far that. north Queensland. Yeah, and he's got to, because he's been sent in because he knows that he can befriend Norris once again and get in there. Yeah. Tony Hayes is going to come undone. This is great stuff. This is a freaking go picture. Yep, that's getting green lit easy. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting lit on the green watching it. Yep, I'm going to yep. OD on it's some It's a stoner weed. flick. <laughs> we got a freaking stoner <laughs> flick happening right now. They're moving fucking weed, okay, dude? <laughs> They're trying to get some of that good old Aussie bush pig weed out there, okay? <laughs> it's a weed movie. Uh- <laughs> All right, we are pretty much at the end here of Mm -hmm. our first episode of the Australian Psycho miniseries. This was such a great monster app to go Mm. in on. I adore this movie. It is definitely one to catch up with if you've never seen it. But it's just, I think it is, it's so important because it really reinvigorated my love for Australian film. Me too, and I hope it does for our listeners as well. I think it'll open the door to this genre for you, this Mm -hmm. like cool, grimy, crime Genre. You'll be hearing more words like larrikin, mm-hmm. darrow, durry, and stuff like that over the coming weeks. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll learn to love them. Yes. You'll be exploring the culture that we are, I guess, inundated by in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, for woe or for bro. And I'm doing a thumbs up when I said bro. <laughs> We're going to look at a lot of films. We won't list them all now, but you can definitely expect to see some of the classics like Chopper will mm-hmm. be on here. Uh, Suburban Mayhem, most likely, mm-hmm. we'll touch on. Yes. The square. God, maybe the square doesn't quite fit in. Yeah. I don't know if there's a proper psycho in there. I'd like to talk about the TV series Mr. In Between, but mm-hmm. I think that's going to be an interesting one to talk Absolutely. about. Absolutely. We're still planning it out, but I think it will be not just exclusively stuck in the world of overt crime. I think we're going to move out a little bit, but perhaps the next movie is a little bit more... I don't even know what I would classify as a genre, but it's a movie that you've never seen before. Mm-hmm. It is an out-and-out Australian classic. It is often called Australia's best film. It is a movie that was rediscovered after being thought to be lost for decades. It's a movie known as Outback around the world, but in Australia, we call it Wake in Fright by director Ted Kotcheff. And if you haven't seen it, it is available on Stan, so you can watch mm-hmm. that. It's a very available movie after being completely lost for decades. <laughs> you can find it basically anywhere you want to nowadays. Uh, it's a great movie, and I think my thesis going into next week is, while there is one or two psychos that we normally highlight in a movie, this is a movie that centers a normal person who is an outsider from Australia being surrounded by Australian psychos. All right, so everyone is the Australian psychopath. Absolutely. You know what? Maybe Australia is the true psycho. Perhaps that's the world, the way the world sees us. <laughs> Looking forward to that one. Uh, dude, this was a fun app. 
This was so much fun. If you want to catch more of us, you can head on over to patreon.com slash total reboot and sign up for just five bucks a month to get access to many many more podcasts from us mm. uh i don't know what we're going to be doing in the next couple but we might be paying total respect to some australian actors like tony freaking hayes dude tony, we love you we dude. love you t we love you t <laughs> follow us on our social media mm-hmm. i'm at i'm cameron james you are at this is alexi and a big shout out to tim ben goff who's done the new art for this podcast so good Check him out. His Instagram will be in the show notes. So click on through and check out more of his fucking sick ass artwork. Yes, dude. And tell us what you think of this freaking artwork. Comment. Mm-hmm. Tell us that it looks cool because we think it looks freaking rule. Hella dope, dude. And also give us five stars on iTunes yeah. or wherever you get your podcast. It helps us out. And let us know what you want us to cover either in this mini series or ideas for potential festival curated mini series in the future. Great. And in the... What can I say? What's a little Aussie phrase that we can chuck it at the end here? Hooroo.